You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's April 10th. Hospitals can prepare for a surge of patients critically ill with COVID-19, but this will require them to adopt drastic and creative measures that challenge the standard way of providing care. A new RAND report may help hospital decision-makers at all levels prepare for this challenge. The report includes an easy-to-use online tool to help hospitals, healthcare systems, states, and regions estimate their current critical care capacity, and then explore ways to increase that capacity by reallocating the space, staff, and equipment that's needed to treat critically ill patients. The researchers identified two tiers of activities that hospitals could pursue. The first tier includes strategies that expand critical care capacity without significantly affecting the ability to provide other types of medical care. This includes things like acquiring additional ventilators from stockpiles and converting some operating rooms to critical care units. The second tier of strategies focuses on steps that might increase crisis capacity and will likely significantly affect routine care delivery and operations. This might include turning regular hospital beds into critical care beds, reopening shuttered hospitals, and changing staffing ratios and standards of care. This study is RAND's first philanthropically funded research response to the coronavirus pandemic, but it won't be our last. If you're a decision maker in the healthcare field, a hospital employee, or a health policy professional at the state or local level, or if you know someone who is, we hope you'll go to RAND.org, access this report and the accompanying tool, and help us put these findings into practice to help America's hospitals better respond to COVID-19. Nearly 17 million Americans have filed for unemployment insurance in the last three weeks, with 6.6 million seeking benefits last week alone. And in the coming weeks, stay-at-home orders could idle 20% or more of the U.S. workforce. Unfortunately, the country's unemployment insurance system has been neglected for decades, says Rance Catherine Edwards, to the point that it's becoming obsolete. Here's Edwards explaining some of the fundamental issues with the U.S. unemployment system. In theory, unemployment insurance is the exact program that we would want at this time. It was designed to help workers who met three qualifications. They had worked previously, they had lost their job through no fault of their own, and they were actively uh, willing and searching for work. The problem is that in practice, UI has been eroded over the years, somewhat intentionally, in order to reduce taxes on businesses. Uh, It has not been reformed or updated on the federal level since 10 years before I was born. And there are now a lot of problems with eligibility. Not that many people get it. Not that many people know how to apply for it. States are not well positioned either logistically or financially to handle handle an influx of claims, and the money itself that you can get is not that large. So we do have a program in place, but it has to be reformed on the fly if it's going to be effective in today's economic climate. Lawmakers are taking steps to address these shortfalls as unemployment claims skyrocket during the COVID-19 crisis. Edward says that these are welcome measures to help tide people over, but long-term reforms are also needed. At a minimum, she says, the program should be federalized into a single unemployment system. 
This would remove state variations in eligibility and benefits, stop penalizing workers who move across states, and end the race to the bottom among states to have lower tax rates. Reform could also include broader use of what's called work-sharing assistance. Under this concept, a business struggling financially can apply for assistance from an unemployment trust fund to temporarily cover a portion of payroll costs. Right now, only 28 states in the U.S. have any type of work-sharing program. According to Edwards, bold changes such as these would strengthen America's unemployment program so that it can help businesses and workers ride out economic shocks that are beyond their control, like those caused by COVID-19. Nearly all U.S. schools have shut down during the pandemic, and a growing number of states are deciding to extend this shutdown for the rest of the school year. School districts are shifting to online classes to help students stay on track, but this is uncharted territory for educators, students, and parents across the country. Rand researchers recently answered some of the most pressing questions about this unprecedented educational disruption. Darlene Opfer, Vice President and Director of Rand Education and Labor, discussed the learning loss that students will experience while schools are closed for an extended period of time. It's hard to predict exactly how much students will be affected, she says, but RAND research provides some insights. We do know from our own research at RAND that um, every summer children lose learning uh, when they're out of school. It particularly impacts uh, low-income students and students with special needs more than it does other students, um, So, and that those students also come to school already with achievement gaps in kindergarten. So the combination of both existing achievement gaps and widening achievement gaps that will result from being out of school over a long period of time is going to exacerbate uh, the situation that we have now. Schools and educators have their hands full as they try to mitigate learning loss and continue to support students. There's a lot to worry about, from delivering high-quality instruction to ensuring kids' social and emotional needs are met, to helping students who might rely on schools for more basic needs, such as meals. Given these challenges, school districts will likely need some support. Heather Schwartz is the director of RAND's Pre-K-12 Educational Systems Program. Here she is explaining how the federal government could help. The federal government could play a really crucial role here, and that's because um, giving children access to the Internet from the home and a device that can connect to the Internet, whether that be a tablet or a laptop, are really crucial for online learning. And yes, online learning has its limitations, but it's crucial. It's really, it far exceeds the potential of hard copy materials, which some schools are currently sending home in you know, um, in the form of worksheets and and dropping them off through school bus routes or through pickup spots, those worksheets can only go so far. And it really places a burden on parents, especially for young children or children with disabilities, to really provide the instruction in lieu of a teacher. So that online learning is super important. And finally, what can parents do? We know that some of you listening have kids at home, so we'll wrap up this discussion about education with a tip from Rand's Laura Hamilton, who is a parent herself. Parents are getting inundated, like teachers, um, with advice on what they should be doing, how to set up a homeschool, all of the resources they can use, Um, and it's frankly overwhelming. And and again, parents, like teachers and other school staff, are dealing with their own concerns about health. They may be taking care of other loved ones. They may have concerns about... um, 
you know, their economic future, many are laid off. Um, and so I think it's really important for parents um, to understand that their most important task, first and foremost, is to just be a supportive, loving, stable presence for your children. This is going to matter much more in the long term than whether you figure out how to operate that new system or that new nifty app that, that you um, come across on, on Twitter or whatever it might be. Um, it's important for parents to seek out support. That might be from your child's teachers, other youth workers, even other parents, um, people to talk with and get ideas from. Um, remember that your children not only have significant academic needs, but that they also are likely to be experiencing stress, anxiety, and a sense of loss. Um, you may find that your child's losses seem small compared to the things you're worried about or to the, the losses that we're seeing around us. Might just be a missed soccer season or a canceled prom. Um, it's important to realize that to children, these losses loom very large in their lives. So just being available to help them process this and think about um, alternatives and you know, understand, really understand where they're coming from and, and be there for them. Our researchers covered a lot more during this discussion, and you can find the complete Q&A on the RAND blog. Or you can listen to this Q&A in our Call with the Experts podcast feed. Farm workers are essential first responders in keeping America's food supply going during the pandemic. But these workers are living and working in difficult conditions. Many live in crowded trailers, bunkhouses, or in encampments scattered around agricultural areas. And most farm workers don't own vehicles, so they travel to the fields crowded together into vans or buses. They also live in rural areas with limited access to hospitals or healthcare services. These conditions mean that it may be too late to prevent or contain the spread of COVID-19 among farm workers, says Rand Susan Marquis. But if we don't take action now to protect them, then, quote, the human toll will be tragic and the effect on our food supply will be critical failure. Marquis recommends that FEMA, the CDC, and state governments include farm workers and agricultural communities in their emergency response plans. She outlines a few specific examples of support that could help, including establishing field hospitals in agricultural areas, providing temporary housing, which could help get farm workers out of overcrowded quarters, and hand-washing stations scattered throughout the fields, at bus stops, and in farm worker encampments. Americans have rallied around healthcare workers, raising concerns about the masks, gloves, and other equipment needed to protect them, says Marquess. And we must do the same for those working on the front lines of our nation's food supply. The Supreme Court is scheduled to hear the latest legal challenge to the Affordable Care Act this fall. The case focuses on the ACA's individual mandate penalty. If the mandate is struck down by the court, then the constitutionality of the ACA becomes a complicated legal question. But according to RAND experts, the public health implications of overturning the ACA could not be simpler. More than 20 million people could lose their health insurance. And if that happens during the pandemic, it could put additional strain on the healthcare system, increase community transmission of the coronavirus, and result in more avoidable deaths. This is true for many reasons. Here are just a few of the primary concerns. First, uninsured people with early stage or mild symptoms of COVID-19 may be reluctant to visit a healthcare provider to seek diagnosis, once testing is more widespread, or treatment should any become widely available. 
and without a confirmed diagnosis, people may be less concerned and less likely to adhere to self-quarantine. That could worsen the spread of the virus both within a household and throughout communities. Second, a vaccine is likely to be at least 12 to 18 months away. So getting inoculated against the coronavirus probably won't be an option until after the Supreme Court issues a ruling on the ACA. It's also unclear whether a vaccine would be freely available even to the uninsured. And finally, a lack of insurance will leave some victims of COVID-19 unable to pay for treatment of severe and life-threatening complications, leading to more medical bankruptcies and financial strain. Simply put, the stakes associated with the possibility of a mass loss of health insurance during a pandemic couldn't be higher. And we'll close today with a new piece of RAND research that isn't related to the pandemic. A report published just yesterday outlines how to deal with the threat of quantum computers. Quantum computers of the future are expected to be millions of times faster than whatever device you're using to listen to this podcast. This spike in speed could be used by hackers to undo the security measures that currently protect every piece of data we send over the web today. But there's good news. If we act now, quantum attacks can be stopped. The key is developing a new form of cryptography known as post-quantum cryptography, or PQC. Experts are developing PQC solutions right now, but those solutions will need to be standardized and widely adopted, which could take years or even decades. That's one reason why the authors of the report recommend taking steps to address this quantum threat right away. Here's the bottom line. Quantum computers could break the internet. That much is true, but whether that actually happens is entirely up to us. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. See you next week.